from the WIA. This is the weekly national news service originating from VK1 WIA. This is WIA National News for week commencing October the 7th, 2012. Hi, I'm Robert VK3DN. And I'm Brian VK3GR. G'day, Rob. G'day, Brian. Four weeks in a row, Rob. Four weeks, indeed. I think Graham said he was going to be away for six. So uh, four down and... Uh, well, this is number four going down and uh, two more to go. Thank you all for listening. And thank you all for listening to last week's special episode too. Yeah, special broadcast in memory of uh, Michael Owen. I'd like to thank again those who uh, contributed with preparation of the material that was uh, presented on last week's broadcast. There was some uh, help that was given behind that and uh, we really do appreciate uh, the help of Peter Wolfenden, David Wardlaw and Jim Linton for the preparation of the material and also for those people who uh, recorded and sent in their uh, special segments as well. Rob, you attended Michael's funeral last week? On Friday, yeah. It was held in Brighton, Victoria. There were probably about, I'd say, 300 at the church. After the church service, we uh, had refreshments uh, at the hall next door and an opportunity for a few of Michael's close friends and uh, Region 3 representatives and IAU representatives to uh, who said a few words. Following the uh, refreshments in the hall, we went to a hotel in Brighton and enjoyed a nice meal together. And there's what I'd call an open mic where people could walk up to the mic and share their stories and memories of Michael. So uh, a sad day, very sad day, but a fitting day to the uh, life of Michael and the work that he's been doing. And that work is, of course, ongoing. We see it in the Foundation Licence. We see it in uh, Amateur Radio and VK and in Region 3. And we can uh, think back to the work that he's been doing, well, I guess for decades now. His work will live on. All right, Brian, uh, you've got the first story this week. Yeah, just a couple. We had the wireless Hilston Tenery. It's still active, so we are putting that audio on a bit later in the program. Uh, thank you very much to the uh, Radio Amateurs Old Timers Club who put in a reminder for the October 1 broadcast. Uh, that did go to air, and we thank them for their submission. And there was also a reminder for the Oceania DX phone contest, which is this weekend's broadcast uh, weekend, and next weekend's a, uh, a CW portion of that. So we'll get on to that. But right now, straight into a field day heads up. November 24th and 25th is the spring VHF and UHF field day. The VHF-UHF field day provides VHF and UHF operators with the opportunity to head for the hills and see how far they can work. The field days have separate sections for single and multiple operator stations. The duration of the field day is 24 hours, but there are also eight-hour sections for operators who may not be able to camp overnight. Most club stations prefer to operate for the full 24 hours. The field days also generate plenty of activity from home stations, so there's also a separate home station section. The scoring's based on grid locator squares. Each new square worked gives quite a boost to the score, and this encourages the entrance to operate from locations in grid squares that don't normally have a great amount of amateur activity. There are no mode restrictions, except that all contacts must be simplex, so contacts through repeaters or satellites are not allowed. It is possible to do very well with only modest antennas if you pick a good hilltop. Another option, if your station's easily transportable, is to operate from more than one grid square during the contest period. The overriding aim is to get away for the weekend and have fun. But next after that, the aims are to encourage more activity on VHF and microwave bands and to encourage people to work greater distances than usual by operating portable and to provide opportunities for people to activate 
or work into new grid squares. So I reckon everyone should have a good go if they haven't done it before. That sounds like a lot of fun, Brian, and let's see how many people get involved on that activity. And to hams across Australia, starting with VK3 and the Barg Hamvention Diary Tickler. Yes, the Ballarat Amateur Radio Group will hold its annual hamvention on Sunday the 21st of October in the usual place provided by the Ballarat Greyhound Racing Club in Rubicon Street, Redden. Doors open for traders at 8am and general access is at 10am. Further details at www.barg.org.au and in the upcoming WIA news broadcasts. And a VK4, invitation to an IEEE lecture. You're all invited to attend a technical seminar at JCU School of Engineering and Physical Sciences and IEEE North Australian section. Tuesday 9th of October, 5.30pm, Building DA003, Room 002 in the Humanities Block, James Cook University, Douglas Campus. The seminar is by Dr Trevor Bird, President-Elect of the IEEE Antennas and Propagation Society, Principal, Attengenuity and CSIRO Fellow. From Wireless to Astronomy. Lessons from an engineering career. The wireless revolution in progress has produced dramatic changes in our work and social activities. The speaker, Dr Bird, was fortunate to have witnessed firsthand some of the wireless research that caused some of these changes. In the 1980s and early 1990s, he participated in a project that aimed to achieve then 10 times the current data rate for indoor wireless local area networks. His research in antennas and propagation for wireless lands anticipated later research by a CSIRO team that resulted in a patented approach that is now incorporated in most wireless chips in use today. That's uh, pretty special, bro. And we've got another related article coming up later. Oh, very good. Okay, TARC WIA exam information. Now, if you didn't know this, exam sessions in the North Queensland region are held on demand with WIA assessors and assessment packs available for all three levels of licensing. Simply contact the TARC Inc. WIA exams regional coordinator. His name is Ray and his call sign is VK4NET. You can contact him on his home phone 4723 4351 to have a mutually suitable date and WIA assessors assigned to your assessment. Thanks Gavin VK4ZZ for that information. To VK5. Wyson South Australia Activity Day on Sunday 14th of October. The day is being held at the Adelaide Hills at Prospect Hills Scout Hall, approximately 7 kilometres by road southwest of Meadows. Please ensure you RSVP by the 8th of October so that the barbecue lunch can be catered for properly. Family and friends who are interested in amateur radio for emergencies are also welcome. And to VK7 and the Miena Ham Fest. Yes, this is the big VK7 ham fest that happens every two years in the Central Highlands of Tasmania, thanks to the Central Highlands Amateur Radio Club of Tasmania. Miena is booked for the 1st of December 2012, with the usual lineup of traders making the journey across the ditch. It's a pretty big ham fest if it takes two years to prepare for, Rob. It's one amazing ham fest. We need to go and check this one we out, head Brian. Across. Thank you. Northwest Tasmanian ATV groups Joda and Jody activities. Planning for this event is continuing and the club will again be providing resources and operators over two days at the Patton Park Camp at Alveston. Operators offering their assistance at this time with communications and control are Neil 7NX, Ross 7WP, Paul 7HPD, Jim 7JH, Graham 7NGA and Tony 7AX. Well done, fellas. An invitation is extended for anybody else to assist. You do not need to have a call sign. 
and there will be a full call operator in attendance at all times. So please contact the club if you're interested in getting along. And the October NTARC meeting. To be held on Wednesday the 12th of October, this will again be the yearly pilgrimage to Mount Barrow. I've been to Mount Barrow. It's a pretty good uh, location, Brian. Last year, this was a really great evening. I can imagine that. And uh, those that attended thoroughly enjoyed themselves, especially in the extended twilight that came with the introduction of Daylight Saving just days before. So this same formula will also apply in 2012. So get along. Arrival time is any time in the afternoon and NTARC have the site overnight. So if you are appropriately equipped... I guess that means uh, sleeping bag, etc. Well, why not camp out until next morning? There are members who regularly do just that and they would love to have your company. To international news, with thanks to the IARU, RSGB, SARL, Southgate Amateur Radio Club, ARRL, Amateur Radio Newsline, NZART, AR Victoria and the worldwide resources of the WIA, we begin with Peter Lake, ZL2AZ, appointed chairman of the IARU Region 3. Directors in IARU Region 3 have voted to appoint Peter Lake, ZL2AZ, of Wellington, New Zealand, as the chairman of IARU Region 3. He replaces Michael Owen, VK3KI, who passed away unexpectedly last month. Owen, who was also president of the Wireless Institute of Australia, had served as Region 3 chairman since 2006. I'm extremely grateful to my fellow directors for their support in this difficult time and for the procedural work by IARU Region 3 Secretary Ken Yamamoto, JA1CJP, to formalise an appointment, Lake said in his statement. I will do my best to carry through all the work that we have in progress, much of it due to items and ideas put in place by Michael. It is my privilege to have the opportunity to serve you, the member societies and fellow amateurs in Region 3. Lake, who has been a licensed amateur for more than 50 years, has been involved with IARU activities for more than 25 years and a director of Region 3 since February 2005. He began his professional career as an engineer, first with the New Zealand Post Office and then with Telecom New Zealand. He followed this with 14 years at a small and specialised telecommunications consulting company in Wellington that included a wide variety of assignments in the Pacific, Asia and Southeast Asia. My style will probably be different from Michael's in some ways, Lake explained, but our goals are the same, to ensure a growing and successful IARU Region 3. From the WIA, this is the weekly national news service originating from VK1 WIA. And South Sudan, Brian, is now on the air. The Republic of South Sudan has issued its first amateur radio licences. The call sign... Z81A went to Jim Pratt, who also holds a United State call letters K7QI, and the second license was issued was Z81D, and that went to Dear Al Sadi YI1DZ, and both are reportedly now on the air. Congratulations to South Sudan, I guess. To be on the air. Well done. Looking ahead to WRC 15. From an amateur radio perspective, the 2012 World Radio Communications Conference, WRC-12, was very successful. According to IARU Secretary Rod Stafford, W6ROD, the IARU Administrative Council will meet in the next 45 days and will address the agenda items for the 2015 World Radio Communications Conference with an eye to building the best strategy for dealing with those items in a way that is most favourable to the amateur radio service. 
While the IARU will be watching all agenda items in 2015, there is one agenda item that focuses on the amateur radio service and another four that may have an effect on the amateur radio service. End of an era for MKARS at Bletchley Park. On the 1st of January 2013, the 18-year association of the Milton Keynes Amateur Radio Society, that's MKARS, and Bletchley Park will finally come to an end, due to MKARS having to vacate their current clubhouse on the estate. The main reasons for Bletchley serving the notice on MKARS are due to the building currently occupied as their clubhouse being required to make way for the creation of a new park entrance and access road to the coach park. No additional space is available, unfortunately, on the estate for which MKARS could occupy. It's been deemed that the Milton Keynes Amateur Radio Society will simply not fit into the future World War II profile of the Bletchley Park Museum. Having attained museum status, Bletchley Park will eventually have regular opening and closing times, after which there will be no public access. The Milton Keynes Amateur Radio Society and its members have both been privileged and proud to have been associated with the world-renowned Bletchley Park, its history, its outside events and its place in the public consciousness. By representing the voice of both Amateur Radio and Bletchley Park to the world, the callsign GB2BP has made Milton Keynes Amateur Radio Society friends in many countries, creating interest in the amazing work which was carried out within Bletchley Park during World War II. Although GB2BP may no longer be in the residence on Bletchley Park after the 1st of January, it will reappear occasionally as a special event station supporting public events on Bletchley Park. And thanks to Lynn of VK4SWE for that information. And uh, yes, I've been to Bletchley Park, Brian. And Bletchley Park is uh, famous for its uh, World War II Enigma decryption, was it? Yes, that that was the site, the secret site during World War II where the the, uh, secret messages were being decoded. And uh, yeah, I've been to the uh, clubhouse there. I've met the uh, guys in the club. In fact, I've got photographs too. I can send you after this broadcast, Brian, of uh, of their clubhouse and some of their members. So uh, a real shame. But uh, as it said in the story, they've uh, done amateur radio proud um, with the work they've done at the museum. So thanks, guys, and good luck to them. Distracted Driver Bulletin, Ontario extends exemption. The Radio Amateurs of Canada are today announcing written confirmation from Minister Bob Shirelli of the Ontario Provincial Government regarding a five-year extension of exemption to the Ontario Distracted Driving Law. In his letter, the Minister explains that the current exemptions for both amateur radio and two-way commercial radios will be extended until January 1st, 2018. The Minister expresses his hope that in that time commercial hands-free alternatives will be found for two-way radios. While RAC finds victory in the five-year extension, a permanent solution is desired and required. The Radio Amateurs of Canada will continue to pursue a permanent exemption for radio amateur operators in Ontario. Similar exemptions already exist in many other provincial jurisdictions in Canada, thanks in part to the efforts of local amateurs and RAC's national strategy to address distracted driving legislation. I know that uh, here in VK3, Rob, we've got the Road Safety Rules Act of 2009, and for us it's regulation uh, number 300. It says mobile phones does not include a CB radio or other two-way radios. So for our mobile phone distracted driving laws, that's what we need to to be aware of, that we're okay here, and it is uh, legislated. So 
uh, I'd suggest that the uh, amateurs in every other state be aware of what their rules are, and it's always interesting to see how different countries deal with the same problems differently. Yes, yeah. But even if you are operating your amateur radio whilst driving, be very careful. We Do don't want care. to uh, don't want to have any car accidents caused by distracted driving. Okay, here's a good one. Weird and wonderful. Nestle defined UK customers via GPS chips in candy bars. What, chips in candy bars? No, not potato chips, but silicon chips. It's a new twist to the old winning ticket in a chocolate wrapper bar trick. Nestle have announced a marketing campaign in the UK that will disguise six self-activating GPS location trackers in wrappers of the company's various chocolate bars. Once activated, Nestle representatives will track down the lucky winners within 24 hours and exchange the tracker for a cheque in the amount of 10,000 British pounds. Other modernisations on the stalwart of the confectionery industry advertising is the inclusion of QR codes. They are two-dimensional barcodes that can be read by smartphones to a portion of the public advertising posters. Other posters will also have NFCs added. Now, an NFC is Near Field Communications, a technology building upon 13.58 MHz RFID tags that will be used to access, control, event ticketing, contactless payments and media sharing and starting to be found embedded in the recent generation of smartphones. So it appears that Nestle really values your three-minute chocolate eating experience at around £200,000 per hour. Not a bad job if you can get it. And uh, if not, well, then you might be an Oompa Loompa or something like that, Brian. Yes. Willy Wonka. Yes, and the Chocolate Factory. Thanks to VK3GR for that uh, story. You're welcome. It's a good one to put together, actually, and chase down all the details. Operational news, Dateline 2012, distance-based scoring proposal. A proposal for a change to the distance-based scoring has been published by Andrew, VK1DA, and Colin, VK5DK. It follows several years of discussion amongst some of the operators in the VHF-UHF field days who have found that the scoring system used in these contests seems to have problems for operators in country areas. This proposal has been developed after several months of discussion via email. The proposal outlines the problems seen with the grid square-based scoring scheme. It points out that grid squares, apart from not being square, have different sizes depending on your latitude. Thus, the grid square scoring system does not give all VK operators the same rewards for making the same distance contacts. While many operators think of VHF DX as the contacts made on 6 metres, or much less often on 2 metres via the ionosphere, the primary interest of VHF and UHF specialists is the tropospheric propagation which does not involve ionospheric reflection. The distance spanned by contacts is the primary measure of the difficulty of a contact with the vital factors being the power used, the antenna gain, and the receiver sensitivity combined with the operator skill to make successful long-distance contacts. The sponsors of the proposal believe that instead of rewarding operators on the basis of grid squares worked, a distance-based score would make more sense for VHF-UHF contacts and could be consistently applied in all parts of the country. Well, what about rovers? Rovers are stations who try to operate from as many different grid squares as possible. As a distance formula would not work well with rovers, it's been suggested that the rover stations would continue to use the grid squares for their scoring. They could continue to make contacts with all states, 
the contacts qualifying both operators for the points applying to their operating category. The other major change proposed is the introduction of a separate category for 6, 2 and 70 centimetre bands. This category caters directly to those operators who have multi-band radios, such as the very popular FT-857, FT-897, IC-706, 7000, the TS-2000, etc., and who do not have equipment for any higher bands. This would take away any concerns about the higher weighting given to the microwave bands. This proposal caters for the very large number of operators who are equipped for 6.2 and 70 via their multiband radios and gives them a separate category to compete in. Colin and Andrew think this will boost operator numbers in the event and give those excellent radios a little more use and a lot more amateurs who already have suitable equipment will consider operating in this contest. The proposal is available on the net for all to read. The address is simple. Go to vk1da.net and you'll find the first item on the homepage is a link to the proposal. After reading the proposal, you're invited to participate in a short survey which asks for some details on your past operating bands in these events, your future plans, whether you like the idea of the proposal, and invites you to make any other suggestions that you think will improve the field days in some way. So just repeating that address, go to vk1da.net and follow the links. From the WIA, this is the weekly national news service originating from VK1 WIA. Okay, and talking of field days, Brian, what about the Remembrance Day contest? What an event it was this year. Yeah, really big one, Rob. Lots, uh, lots of people getting back into it, and new uh, newcomers as well. Obviously, the F calls are having a crack. It's good to see the uh, contest, which has always been a real focal point, uh, back on its feet again in a big way. So uh, well done to everybody who participated. And as promised on the WIA RD contest page, the winners of this year's event were announced around the September the 25th, with full details available in a number of files on the contest homepage, as well as a short report to appear in the November Amateur Radio magazine. A quick run-through of the headline winners includes VK7NET winning the single-op phone category and VK7RF taking out single-op CW. Single-op mixed was VK6ZRW. QRP phone VK6FLAB, that's Ono. QRP CW VK3QB and QRP mixed VK2IG. Multi-single VK2GGC and multi-multi VK4XA. The team's category was taken out by Wallaroo with 1,898 points and the Lockyer Legends were close behind with 1,819 points and the Elizabeth Amateur Radio Club in third place. Congratulations go to VK2FWWD, VK6FMON, and VK4FAAS, who took out the three top positions in the Foundation Licence category. Another exceptional year of participation and a hotly contested event under the new format rules. LTE trial in Bendigo ends. The ACMA has advised the WIA that the 700MHz LTE trial in the Bendigo region has now ended. In effect, this means that advanced amateur radio licence holders that were in the exclusion zone can now apply to the ACMA for a variation of their existing licences to operate up to 1 kilowatt on the primary HF bands during the trial period. More information on how to apply can be found on the WIA website 
And the 700 MHz LTE trial in the Perth area is still continuing, where an exclusion zone for high-power HF operation is in place. And again, details of the exclusion zone can be found on the WIA website. Nana Special Event Station's DX Beacon and Net Advice. Hams from five countries help put Kosovo on the air for the very first time. On September 12th, the ART, Kosovo's Telecommunications Regulatory Authority, created the necessary legal framework for the development of an amateur radio service in the Republic of Kosovo by approving its regulation for AR services. Although not formally assigned a prefix by the ITU, Kosovo will use the Z6 prefix. Currently, Kosovo does not count towards the ARRL's DXCC award, as it has not yet been assigned a prefix, nor has it been recognised by the United Nations. Nigel Cawthorn, G3TXF, and Bob Barden, MD0CCE, members of the Chiltern DX Club, were part of the team of operators led by IARU Region 1 President Hans Blondel Timmerman, PB2T, that activated Z60K, the first amateur radio station in the Republic of Kosovo. For Cawthorn and Barden's account of Z60K activation, check out the ARRL website, link in the text edition. And DXCC Desk approves 11 operations for DXCC credit. On September the 19th, the ARRL DXCC Desk approved the following 2012 operations for DXCC credit, and the full details are in the text edition. But they were the operations to Mauritius, Croatia, Montenegro, Palestine, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Tajikistan, Jordan, Kazakhstan, Serbia, Macedonia and Albania. And tell us about DXCC validity, Brian. Just a quick one, perhaps a reminder for the keen DXs and hopefully of some help to the newbies. There are occasional de-expeditions that have not been validated or approved for DXCC award purposes. Typical reasons include shipboard operation, operations not authorised by the relevant radio regulatory body, no documentation provided to prove operations, or that the location is not a recognised DXCC entity. There are lists collated in various places, for instance on ok1rr.com, but if you have a particular query about a de-expedition or strange details on a QSL card, contact the DXCC desk at the ARRL directly, dxcc at arrl.net. And now we have Monique, VK6FMON. Thank you very much for this audio regarding the Wireless Hill Centenary. The Aboriginal people once called Wireless Hill Yagan's Lookout, providing perfect views of the surrounding area. In 1912, the federal government built one of Australia's first telecommunication stations. Using Morse code, the telecommunication station communicated with ships off the Australian coast using a 120-metre mast. In 1916, during the First World War, it was used by the Royal Australian Navy using 60-kilowatt Polson arc transmission and valve-operated receivers. In 1927, Applecross Wireless Station became a feeder station for international radiograms, weather reports, news bulletins and press reports. The AWA installed a shortwave beam system which extended transmitting range of stations enabling direct communications between England and Australia. The Wireless Hill Centenary starts on the 29th of September for two weeks over the school holiday period. The special call sign of VI6VIP has been allocated to the WA VHF group for this period. So get on air and contact VI6VIP. 
VIP and participate in this special event. The WA VHF Group also welcomes all clubs and their members to visit Wireless Hill to activate this special call sign. The allocation of VI6 VIP is in tribute to the first call sign used at Wireless Hill. I'm Monique, VK6 FMON. Now, Brian, we're almost at the end of the broadcast, but uh, one more uh, for this week. Uh, Q News Workbench, the nuts and volts report. This is something you mentioned at the top of the broadcast. It's a change in the spectrum of data networks. Tell us about it, Brian. Well, after 15 years in the market, the now ubiquitous Wi-Fi computer network standards are found in mobile phones, remote control toys, medical industrial controls, and just about anything else you can think of. Wi-Fi uses 2.4 gigahertz and the 5 gig RF spectrum to deliver between 1 megabit and 150 megabits, with more recent devices employing MIMO, multiple in, multiple out antenna arrays, to provide concurrent data transfers in more than one direction as a strategy to increase overall network throughput to areas serviced by individual devices. The new Wi-Fi draft standard, 802.11ac, is set to double the MIMO streams from 4 to 8 and employ 80 MHz and 160 MHz bandwidths to ramp speeds up to 860 megabits a second. Research at the University of Edinburgh is investigating light-based data networking, dubbed LiFi, as in light fidelity. They're using modulated LEDs and photosensors that have already reached data rates of 130 megabits. Professor Harold Hass has called the system D-Light and started an incubator project to produce and market a retrofit kit to bring speeds of up to 50 megabits to your home or work. As with Wi-Fi, the light-based data system uses OFDM, orthogonal frequency division multiplexing, and speeds of 1 gigabit a second and above are discussed. In contrast to an RF solution, directed, filtered, or perpendicular light channels are just a few of the ways to restrict access and interference between adjacent network devices, and that will further increase the potential network throughput in congested areas. Harold Hass's TED conference presentation entitled Wireless Data from Every Light Bulb" can be viewed at TED.com. Well, thanks for that, Brian. That should be of interest to quite a few of our uh, listeners. Well, we've come to the end of the news, Brian. We've got lots of news, in fact, way more than you can fit into 30 minutes, but uh, we'll be bringing you a lot more news again next week. So thanks again for uh, listening to us this week and joining in with WIA National News for this week. I'm Robert, VK3DN. And I'm Brian, VK3GR. Thank you for listening. And as always, we've reported, you decide. We've reported, you decide.